Hebrews chapter 9 ultimately deals with this reality, the reality of worship, what we talk about and what we think about on the Lord's Day when people flock to these buildings that we call church. This Lord's Day is that specific day of the month that we celebrate the Lord's Table together. It's always a special time for us here in our church. The Lord's Table is really more than just remembrance. It's more than just a time to think about Jesus Christ and all that He accomplished on the cross. That is for sure true. It's really, though, however, all about deep, heartfelt worship. Communion is a time of worship, for that's why we gather together as the visible body of Christ. Of course, we understand every believer throughout the globe is part of the universal church of Christ, and yet here we are by God's design in a local place, a local visible body representing Jesus Christ. And that is for us to gather together so that we can corporately worship our Savior together. The writer of Hebrews teaches us about so many tangible blessings that you and I receive individually from the time that we come together. The church is a unique reality that you can only receive certain things from God through the gathering together with the body. In fact, we are exhorted, we are even commanded, chapter 10 of Hebrews, to Never, never, never forsake the assembling of the body together. Why? Because God has designed it to be a time in such that you and I are stimulated by others and we are the stimulants in others' lives to greater love and righteousness. writer of Hebrews calls them good deeds, righteous living. But nothing is really better and nothing is more important than what we ultimately do when we are together corporately, and that is that we worship Jesus Christ. This is why we gather. We gather to worship God. Why we exist. In fact, that's why we have been created. We have been created by God so that we might worship God. He is worthy of our worship, and we worship God the Father through the worship of God the Son. We worship God through Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. That is what we will do for all eternity. If we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we will worship. That's what we are. We do not love worship now if you say, well... Worship at church is boring. Worship is not some place I want to be. Worship is not where I want to be with on a Sunday, on a Lord's Day. I don't desire to worship with the people who go there. Or if you're allowing sin to keep you from worship, and you have no sadness of your sin, no sense in which there is shame before God, then you should have no confidence in your heart that you actually know God at all. This is what we are. We are worshipers by our very character as Christians. And that is what we will do forever and ever. We will worship Christ. So as Christians, this is essential for us. We are worshipers. 
And it is the body and blood of Christ that opens the door, if you will, for us to worship His blood, His sacrifice. That means then by implication that external religious ritual can never be or accomplish true worship. Anything that is void of the reality of a relationship with Jesus Christ is not worship. Why? Because a clear conscience is necessary for true worship. The author of Hebrews is driving that point home here in chapter 9. And he's doing that by showing the inadequacy of the old covenant to truly clear a guilty conscience And he is comparing it to the adequacy of the new covenant, which is in Christ. In other words, the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ is adequate for worship in comparison to even what God gave to Israel in the old covenant, which could not give you a clear conscience. Now I want to begin our time this morning by just reading for us verses 11 through 14. And then I'll just walk ourselves through this text and draw out some implications for our own lives personally. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Because if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, clear, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So you notice right there, just in those words, there is the inadequacy of the old in comparison with the new. And it is set before us through a comparison of worship. Worship within the tabernacle in the first 10 verses, and we'll look at that here in a moment in chapter 9, verses 1 through 10. That's worship through the old covenant. And worship through Jesus Christ, which we find here in these verses that I read. And you notice the first five verses give us this reminder or this glimpse into, if you will, the setup of the earthly tabernacle. And I I call it a, a reminder or a reminding glimpse simply because you can read the details of that tabernacle back in Exodus chapter 24 and 25, if you want a a very detailed description. This is more of a reminding glimpse back as the writer of Hebrews takes the readers and you and I back to that in a kind of synopsis fashion. And it's clear from verses 1 through 5 that Israel's tabernacle, at least 
in the time of the first temple being built, until that time, it was a portable tent. You notice what he says. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot speak now in detail. So you have this picture, this reminding glimpse back to the tabernacle in Israel's time. And we understand from Exodus that it was a portable tent. And even after that, uh, even after it was a permanent fixture, it was always placed in a, in a geographical center of the tribes of Israel. It was always the central focus as they were led by God through the wilderness wanderings, even as it was built in Jerusalem. It was the central focus of their life. Now, just for our own understanding, it was made according to specific specifications. Verse 1 says, even the first covenant had regulations. This is, means the whole idea was made according to the certain specifications that God laid out. Early on, the tabernacle was made, of course, as we understand, of linen. It was made of cloth. It had linen walls that were set up as a courtyard around the actual tabernacle itself. There have been many uh, different uh, religious denominations that have tried to duplicate or make a, a replica of that. Even if you go to Israel today, out by the Timnah copper mines there in Israel, there's the Southern Baptists have this whole area set up where it's the tabernacle and the tent and all these kinds of things that replicate this tabernacle out in the desert. And it was called, this outer area was called the court of the tabernacle. The court of the tabernacle. So the linen curtains were made of white cloth. They were there to signify holiness. And so when you, as a worshiper, would come to the, the tabernacle, you would enter the courtyard and you would immediately be face to face with an altar on which the priests would be offering burnt offerings. This was a, a large bronze altar out in the courtyard where they would offer the offerings of the people. And when it came to the tabernacle, if you were not a priest, that was as far as you could go. That was you going to church. You couldn't get any further into the area enclosed by the cloth walls. All you could go was into that place. You could only go as far as the altar, which was just inside those curtains in the courtyard. And it was there that you, as the sinner, the worshiper coming to God, you would bring your sacrifice, uh, any animal kind of sacrifice or any other sacrifice, you'd bring it to the priest, and it's there that you would symbolically place your hands upon that animal, signifying that you were transferring your sin to the animal that is being sacrificed, and then you would leave the area. Now think about it on a practical level. If that was, if this is the temple area, let's just think of this in, in our practical way. If this building is the signify the temple and the parking lot is, is the outer courtyard, 
then all you could do was come into the parking lot. That's as far as you could go when you came to church. You would go to the parking lot. You couldn't come in the building. You couldn't get near the building. You'd come to the parking lot to which then the priest would be out there to take your sacrifice. You could only step inside the parking lot, never into the building. In other words, that's as close as you could ever get to God. In a proximity sense, God was distant from you. Your access to God was severely limited. Right behind the area of the courtyard where you could enter was the actual tabernacle itself. It was made of cloth. Also in the early days, it had three layers of cloth. One layer was tapestry of blue and purple and scarlet yarns. They were woven into this very ornate pattern. And then on top of that were two other layers of animal skins. Now, inside was divided, of course, into two different rooms. That's all it had. Two rooms in the tabernacle. Those rooms were separated by a large, very heavy veil. Every time I read in Exodus that account of the building of the tabernacle and think of the heavy veil, I always think I'm at the dentist wearing one of those big, heavy-weighted lead blankets they put on you when they want to zap your head with x-rays. It doesn't make any sense to me. You're zapping my head with x-rays. Why do you want lead around the rest of my body? Why don't you put lead on my head? Anyway, one room's called the holy place. The other is the most holy place, or the holy of holies. Right, verse 2 says, There was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the scarlet and the sacred bread. This was called the holy place. So in the first room was this lampstand. It this was on one side of the table, like we might put a lamp in our own bedroom on our bedside stand. According to Exodus 25, this was a standalone lamp, however, made of solid gold. And it had three branches that came out, one from each side, so that along the middle part, it had seven lamps. So you had these lamps that came out, you had those three branches, and then you had this one in the middle. That's what the Jews celebrate today is the menorah signifying the lamp. Also in this room was a table of sacred bread, and it was upon that that they kept 12 loaves of bread, each loaf representing one of the tribes of Israel. And every week those loaves would have been replaced with 12 new loaves. So it was always a refreshing going on. So that was room number one. Directly behind that, verse 3 says, behind the second veil there was the, a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. In that was a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, which was covered on all sides in gold. It had inside of it a golden jar holding manna, Aaron's rod, which had budded, and of course, the tables of the covenant, which we know to be the Ten Commandments, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And he says, but on these we can't even speak with detail. So the principal piece within the Holy of Holies was just that, the Ark of the Covenant. It was made of wood, covered in gold. Ten Commandments were in it. The other two items that 
God gave to Israel as a reminder of their deliverance out of the nation of Israel or the nation of Egypt. His care for them, all of those things showed God's seriousness of Him in worship and how He prescribed worship. Number 16, verse, or number 16 through 18, really gives a fascinating account, if you will, of the rebellion of Korah and how God dealt with it in reference to worship. On top of the ark, of course, is the mercy seat, and upon that the high priest would sprinkle blood for the atonement of sin before God. All of this was glorious. All of it was symbolic. It was filled with, with ritual, tradition that God had laid down for the people. And when we, when we get a feel for the tabernacle, then we can begin really as people to appreciate the worship of God that God prescribed for His people. Worship was not just something you did once in a while. Worship was continual. Worshippers were bringing sacrifices to the people, to the bronze altar in front, in the courtyard there, day by day, week by week. This was a continual reality happening all the time. The priests would sacrifice on behalf of the people, and they would serve the people in the first room by keeping the lamps lit and the bread exchanged, and they would keep the flames of the incense going so that the smoke of the incense would fill the room continually. It was an ongoing reality. In fact, in Israel's history, the best butchers in town were the priests because that's what they did all the time. But no one dared look into the most holy place. No one had personal, regular access to God. No one. Ministry in the Holy of Holies was the privilege of the high priest, and he only did that once a year, and that happened on the Day of Atonement. In fact, history tells us that for a week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go to the temple, and he would continually practice. In a separate place, he would be practicing what he was to do when he entered the most holy place. Why would he do that? Because to be in the Holy of Holies ceremonially as an unclean person was instantaneous death. You do not come to God without being right before God. And so on the morning of the Day of Atonement, the high priest offered a burnt offering as a sacrifice, Numbers 29 tells us. And following that, he would ceremonially bathe his entire body and then, instead of putting on his normal priestly garments, he would dress in all white. All of that was to symbolize that he was free of defilement. Once he was dressed in all of that, he would enter with a shallow bowl of burning coals with incense. And he would, the smoke from the incense would fill the room. And he would then exit and enter again with blood. And the blood was that of a bull as an offering for himself and for his own household. The priest wasn't pure. He wasn't somebody who was sinless. He wasn't somebody who was immaculately concepted. 
He was a sinner like everybody else, and he needed to be right before God, before God would even accept anything before him. And so he had to sacrifice this for himself. And so being the high priest, even though it was a great privilege, all of that privilege could be removed because of his sinfulness. So there still needed to be a sacrifice for his own sin before he could ever represent the people before God. So he would sprinkle the blood on and before the mercy seat. Leviticus chapter 16 verse 14 tells us that he sprinkled it on the mercy seat and seven times before the mercy seat in the holy of holies where holiness dwelt in glory. Once he accomplished all of that, he then entered as a representative for the people. And This time when he came in, he brought the blood of the sacrifice for the people. And just before, this was sprinkled on the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat seven times, he would always be thinking to himself, am I right before God? And at the conclusion of the day, there was a great relief for the people. And they spent the entire night rejoicing. In fact, verse 6 and 7 says, Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But in the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without blood, which he offers for himself and the sins of the people committed, notice, in ignorance. So everything's there. The Old Covenant had the sanctuary. The Old Covenant had God's presence. The Old Covenant showed the holiness of God in every detail as God had prescribed it. It revealed the depth of man's sin and what man needed to do to deal with his sin. No one could enter the presence of God without the shedding of blood. It was very solemn, very worshipful. The reality is, even with all of that, even with all of that ritual that God had prescribed, it was still inadequate. It was inadequate for two specific reasons. One, access to God was limited. You could only get so close to God. And, and the one who was closest in that sense of the Holy of Holies was one guy and only once a year. So access to God was limited on a personal basis. And secondly, the effect in covering sin was limited. You notice it was for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. So the priest had limited, limited access. If you were fortunate as a priest, you got to serve the people. And maybe once in your lifetime, you got to serve in the outer room the holy place, and that was only for a week. If you weren't a priest, you had even less access. All you could do was come to the parking lot, the outer court. Forget it if you were a Gentile or a woman. So all of us here would have no access to God, unless you have Jewish heritage. No access to God at all, no hope of any forgiveness at all. And if you were fortunate enough to become a high priest, 
later in Israel's history, that was less to do with who you were by way of your own righteousness, everything to do with politicking for the position. But if you attained that position somehow, even then you had limited access to God, and that was only once a year, and that only through for a few minutes. Right? The second high priest, verse 7 says, enters once a year, not without blood. And the Holy Spirit is signifying this, verse 8, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. I don't think we need to be confused as to the point that the writer of Hebrews is trying to make here. Through the old covenant, there was no direct access to God. Period. No direct access to God. Therefore, it also had limited effect in covering sin. Verse 7 says it was sins of the people committed in ignorance. Agnoema is the word used there in the original language. It means without knowledge. Without knowledge. Sins committed without knowledge. So think about it. Under the old covenant, under the old system, under the ritual of the old system, there was no provision for forgiveness for willful sin. The priest offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in Ignorance. I go back to Numbers for a minute. Numbers 15. Notice what it says beginning in verse 27. Also, if a person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer one year old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among you. But the person who does anything defiantly, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among the people. Why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken the commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? If I do something defiantly, willfully, my guilt is on me, it can't be forgiven, I'm cut off, see you later, done. But if it's unintentional, okay, there's a way to be forgiven. The willful sinner had a huge problem before God. No sacrifice. Nothing would satisfy God. And on the Day of Atonement, only the sins of ignorance are covered. In light of that, no one had a clear conscience. My unknowing sins are covered, but my knowing sins I leave with the guilt still on me. I still don't have a clear conscience. So the external sacrifice only brought temporary, it brought external cleansing, but it never cleared the guilty conscience before God. Back to verse 9 and 10 says, Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifice are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Why? Since they are only 
They relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. You see, this is the contrast being made. This is external religion. This is external ritual. This is going through the religious motions in hopes that in some way I'll be right with God. It's impossible, beloved. You cannot be right with God without having Jesus Christ. This is the writer's point, which is why he puts verse 11 through 14 here and starts it with the word but. This is the contrast. Thankfully, verses 11 and 14 through 14 are here because it says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus, our high priest, Jesus Christ didn't come into the holy place under the cover of incense and smoke so that he might carry out some ritualistic duty so that he might do some religious activity until the next time he could do it again. No, he didn't come in, in carrying in a, a bowl of the blood of an animal that was sacrificed for someone else's life. No, he came in with his own blood. The blood of his life. Life that he was representing, which was those who were guilty before God for sins done in ignorance and willfully. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. What was the good things? What was the good things to come? Well, they were now the good things that have come, verse 12 says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He obtained that which we have, having obtained eternal redemption. He has obtained eternal redemption by entering the holy place not made of this creation with His blood. He entered the holy place once for all time. That's what verse 12 means when it says that, once for all. He doesn't mean He paid for the sins of everybody who ever lived on the face of the earth and therefore everybody's saved. That certainly isn't true. Judas isn't saved. Millions of others who have rejected Jesus Christ certainly aren't saved. No, he means he entered the holy place once and for all time. In other words, he never needs to enter it again. So Now, in and through Christ, there is now unlimited access to God whereby there was limited access through the ritual of the Old Covenant, now through the New Covenant, through Jesus Christ, there is unlimited access to God. But even more than that, even more than that access, those who come through Christ gain what we need most. And that is the unlimited effect of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, a clean conscience. We have a clean conscience Verses 13 and 14, for at the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more 
with the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, all the old ritual, all the old efforts at doing what I can do in order to make myself right with God by some religious activity, all that can do is reform the outside. That's all it can do. You can change your behavior all you want. You can try to clean up your act all you want. You can try to go through some religious process in which you can try to get your life right with yourself. All that does is clean the outside. It only atones for sins in the old system, it could only cover sins done in ignorance. It could never clear your conscience. But in and through Christ, the forgiveness of God affects the soul. It's down to what's needed most. Right? In Him, every sin is forgiven. Notice what verse... 22 of chapter 9 says, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sin. You see that? According to the law, you can almost say all things are cleansed with blood. You can almost say that. Right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Christ didn't enter the holy place made with hands. Verse 24, a mere copy of the true one. He entered into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor is it that he should offer himself often. So the high priest enters the holy place year by year. Blood not his own. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often. Since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We know it's appointed that judgment comes once someone dies, right? Inasmuch as it's appointed to men to die once, and after that judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Why? Because sin has been paid for. So here's the reality of the writer of Hebrews. Christ accomplished the very thing that the old ritual could never do. He made you and I, the worshiper, perfect in conscience. Verse 9 says. Our conscience is clean. Our conscience is clear. We have a a right conscience before God. And so it's an inward, it's a, it's a spiritual purification. It's not an outward thing. It, that's not what, what's required if communion with God is to be enjoyed. You, you can't have a, a clean outside and a dirty inside and have communion with God. You have to have a clean inside. You have to be clean inwardly in order to have communion with God. And if you're clean inwardly, then you strive to live outwardly in a clean way in obedience to God. 
Guilt is removed in the conscience. Guilt of sin. How? By the saving work of Christ. It's the only way. There is no other way. Those who are in Christ by faith are free. Free from the guilt that's bearing down on our conscience before God. And because we are free from that guilt, now we are free to worship God in spirit and truth. Right? God is seeking worshipers, not who will worship Him in ritual, but those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. The ritual was the old system. And the clearing of conscience, the old system could never achieve. I was some time ago reading about a man who was a German soldier in World War II named Albert Speer. And they were doing an interview with him. And he was, he was the brains behind the Nazi factories that were all throughout Europe in World War II. If you've ever been to Europe and visited those places, it's pretty riveting. And he was a confidant of Hitler. He was one of 24 war criminals that were tried in Nuremberg. And he admitted his guilt. Spent many years in prison. After 20 years in prison, person interviewing Albert Speer referred to something that he had written. He had said this, quote, guilt can never be forgiven or shouldn't be, unquote. And the interview asked him, do you still feel that way after 20 years? And this was his answer. Quote, I served a sentence for 20 years and I could say I'm a free man. I could say my conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people during Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. This book that I have written is part of my atoning, part of my clearing of my conscience. The interviewer asked him, you don't believe that you'll be able to clear it totally, do you? To which Albert Speer said, I don't think that it will be possible. He's right. right? Albert Speer accepted complete responsibility for his crime. He wrote about it in a book. He speaks with contrition he speaks with, at times, warning others to not do the kinds of things that he did. And yet, even with all of that, to no avail, his guilty conscience still haunts him. Really tragic. Why? Because real, lasting, conscience-cleansing forgiveness is available. Let me say that again. Real, lasting, conscience-cleansing forgiveness is available. But it's not available through writing a book about what you've done. 
It's not available by sitting in a box talking to a man on the other side who says, do this and do that and you'll be okay. It's not available through coming to a building called a church and attaching yourself to religious activities. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ. In Christ by faith alone, those who believe are new creatures. Paul said, I am a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The guilty man is gone. Behold, a new man is here. And that's the joy of this, beloved. In Christ, in Christ, anyone who will repent, Anyone who will trust themselves to Christ can have their seared, guilty conscience cleared. They can be forgiven before a holy God. And in Christ, we have unhindered access to God. It isn't limited at all. We can go to our God, our Father, anytime because through Christ our conscience is completely clean. What more do we need? That's what, that's what communion is all about. Worship. The worship of Christ, because through His blood, we can have a clear and clean conscience. But when we think about worship, the highest act of worship, the highest place of worship, the highest form of worship is not giving money to the church. It's not being a... a a philanthropic person who just pours it out upon some kind of church or some kind of area whereby you just give money over and over again and you pat yourself on the back and say, hey, I'm good. That's not the supreme act of worship. The supreme act of worship even isn't even attending a church. Even though God commands that we not forsake that as believers, but attending here isn't a supreme act of worship. It isn't even singing worship songs. The supreme act of worship is giving of ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. Denying ourselves and following Christ. That's why Paul commands the Corinthian believers to examine themselves when it comes to this table. Don't come here in an unworthy way. Make sure you're right before God. Why? Because worship is serious. And it's only for those who are right with Christ internally. So beloved, as we prepare our hearts for the communion table, would you just bow with me? Thinking about what we've just kind of rehearsed in our mind and thought through. And like the writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 10, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. So as we worship, may we be sincere in our hearts. Having our hearts filled with humility before God and the purity that only Christ can bring through His cleansing. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for 
the sharpness of it, that it is, as the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing down even into the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Lord, we know that in Christ our conscience has been made clean. And yet, we can burden ourselves with so much thinking that somehow your sacrifice wasn't enough. Wasn't enough to, to cleanse us before you. And because of the sins of our life, even now that we come to you and we, we seek your forgiveness as you have commanded us to do, and we know you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us because we are in Christ. And we overly burden ourselves at times with this weight, unnecessary weight. Oh, we don't want to look at sin lightly. Certainly, we must take every sin serious. Coming to you, seeking your restoration and the relationship that is so important to us. Yet knowing that in Christ all things have been forgiven. And so while, while we don't want to overburden ourselves, we don't want to be so lackadaisical that we don't care. And we abuse your grace. Father, help us to live that balance, the balance between being overburdened and being not burdened at all. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, for saving us in Christ and only through Christ. Lord, without you, we are nothing. You are our only hope. So we praise you for that. Honor your name in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.